This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Yechezkel ben Avraham, Natalia bat Marta, Devorah Fega bat Shmuel, and Menachem Mendel ben Elchanan, and also for uh, Shalom Bayit and success for Matityahu ben Miriam. Okay. So welcome, everybody. Thank you all for coming and joining in the, the live uh, version of the class. I, I do want to say that, that and I, I say this very often, that if not for you guys in the, you know, that in the virtual world that are listening in the live class, I most likely would not be giving classes. So maybe things will change in the future. Who knows? But... The, the schut is really on you guys for going and, and participating in the live class. It's very hard for me to speak to, to uh, nobody. That being said, greatly appreciate it and hakarat tov I have to each and every single one of you that are joining. So now, we're going to be Zlat Hashem discuss tonight a, a s- extremely, extremely important topic in the Emuna world, which is really the Jewish world. And that is based off what the Gemara in Bachot, page 60b, teaches us. And says, That a person should always be used to saying that everything that God does, God does for the best. And this statement by the Gemara is not disputed, not by any Tana, not by any Amora. This, this like, this this uh, statement is undisputed, and it's codified in the Shulchan Aruch in Simen uh, Reish Lamed. It says the exact same words of the Gemara. It says over there the halacha is the olam yehe adam ragil omar kol David Rachmanat Habavid that a person should always be used to saying that everything that happens happens for the best. Now, there was once a uh, king who counted a lot on his prime minister, his like right-hand man, and he would assist him on everything. But there's like one thing that really irked the the king that this prime minister did, and that is everything that ever happened, whether it was bad, whether it was good, whether it was big or small, this prime minister will always scream out, it's all for the best, always declare it's all for the best. And it kind of like irked him, like, what, you know, every single, you know, like the never-ending optimism like got to him. You know, you have like, sometimes you have those like, you know, those morning people, those are the people, you know, that they wake up thinking that they're in a musical. They're like, good morning, world! And they sing, and the birds are singing with them, the squirrels are singing, everybody is, like, dancing. And by the way, not to make fun of those people, that is the correct way to actually wake up. But however, not everybody can handle that. And some people, if they haven't injected the poison of coffee into their veins yet, and someone's like, good morning, they want to take a shotgun, preferably a sawed-off shotgun, and, you know, just, just like play around with it a little bit near a person's face, maybe. And that's not the correct thing, obviously. The correct thing is to be happy when you wake up, but not everybody can handle that. So this kink, even though he knew the correct thing was to always say, yeah, everything is for the best, he couldn't handle it. And one time, this is where, like, it went over the top. And that was when the... They were going, all going hunting, and this like intruder, someone started like chasing the king's entourage. They come straight at him, and the king put up his hand there, is like stop. And his right hand guard went and took out a sword in order to like prevent the guy from coming any closer. And as he took it out very quickly, he went it very fast, and he went very close to the king, and he actually chopped off the king's pinky finger. And the king is like screaming in pain. There's like blood gushing. He's like trying to put pl- pressure to stop the blood. And all of a sudden, the prime minister over there says, it's all for the best. And then the king was like, what? Are you kidding me? Like, I'm sitting over here bleeding out from my pinky and it's all for the best. He's like, that's it. I had it with you. He goes and he sends this prime minister to the dungeon. There, be as cheerful as you want. Be as happy as you want. I don't care. Two years pass by. And this guy is still in the dungeon. 
and the king is on another one of his hunting trips. And all of a sudden, the the entire entourage gets surrounded by a bunch of like tribal like forest, you know, you know, like Amazon people, and uh, they all capture them and they all tie them and they bring them to their camp. And the king realized that these are the cannibals. As they practice, they they eat human beings, and the the cannibals realize that this is the king. And they decided they're going to eat. They're going to make a feast with all the people, and the king is going to be like the dessert. And as they're unfortunately killing people and they're eating them they get to the king and they notice that the king is missing a finger and according to the laws of this tribal group if a human being is missing a body part it's considered not kosher they're not allowed to eat it so they saw it they said listen it's not kosher we can't make a blessing on this that's it and they they untied the king and they let him go out the king ran back to his castle immediately first thing that he did is he freed that um that prime minister that was that was in prison so he goes to the prime minister and says, you see, he, to, to the prime minister, the king goes and says, you were right. You know, it really was for the best. Like if not for, if me, if I would have had my finger, I would have been dead right now. So the, the, the prime minister says, you see, everything is for the best. So the king goes and says, wait a minute. He says, it's the best for me because I lost it. He says, you were sitting two years in the prison in the dungeon. He says, what is it best for you that you were sitting down over there? So the prime minister, without missing a beat, he said, if I wouldn't have been in the dungeon, I would have been hunting with you. And if I would have been hunting with you, then, uh, you know, I would have been, you know, the second to desert. So says the Gemara, says the Halakha, no matter what happens, no matter what you see in your life, that no matter what, a person should always say that everything that happens, happens for the best. And the Ben Yehuda goes and, 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 and comments on this. And the, the, the Gemara, the Halakha, it says, Le'olam means always, meaning that, when we have to go and recognize God, it's not only in the unusual, dramatic, you know, drastic events. Like, let's say you're walking down the street and suddenly, like, you feel like a wind, like, flush by you and you turn around and then there's an air conditioning that just falls down. And if you were just, like, a centimeter to the right, you, you know, God forbid, who knows what have happened. Or maybe you're driving down the street, you know, the street or you're walking and all of a sudden a car just barely misses you. And you were like, wow, you know, I thank you, God. I see God in this. Or some people you have... The scenario where, let's say, they're dating somebody and they really want it to work out, and then it turns out that it didn't, it didn't, it didn't work out. But then many years later, you find out that that person had major, major flaws. So all of a sudden, you're like, okay, fine. And these like crazy scenarios, all of a sudden, you go and you you see like, oh, you see, God has, you know, was watching out over me. God like went and he, uh, you know, took care of me. However. That's not the main focus. The main focus is, is that you need to see God in your ordinary day-to-day occurrences. Le'olam. Le'olam, the, the halakha, is that every single day, no, not only the crazy, imagine, you know, crazy things that you missed the flight and the flight, you know, got it hijacked. Who knows what, God forbid, happened. That's not when you see God. Yeah, of course you see God in that. But the point, the point is, le'olam means in every scenario. And it's so important that each and every single one of us spend one minute every single day just to recognize, recognize God in your, in your life. So when you go and when you see when you see God, called David Rahman al Tavavid, we understand the regular, fine. Even though it's hard, but you understand that the regular one, you're able to go and uh and you're able to go and put yourself in the level to know that everything's from God. But what about what about the hard? What about the difficult? What about those bad? What about those difficult times? How are you able to go and see God in those scenarios as well? So I want to share with you something like unbelievable from Rabbi Miller, Rabbi Victor Miller. And Rabbi Victor Miller goes and says, many times in our history, God saves us from like total disaster. And other times, 
it seems like God did not. You look like in the destruction of the Bet HaMikdash. Nebuchadnezzar went and he destroyed the first Bet HaMikdash. The Romans came and destroyed the second Bet HaMikdash. And the, the Christian church came and finished off whatever the Romans began with. So ask about Victor Miller. Look at all this bad. We've lost the Bet HaMikdash twice. Numerous lives. How can we honestly say, How can we honestly say that everything that God does, God does for the best? And by the way, I'm repeating that, that, you know, that, that verse, that, those, that line. Again and again, because I hope by the end of the class that you will memorize that line. This is an important thing to memorize. So, the, Rabbi Victor Miller goes and explains as follows. And he says, when we lived in Eretz Yisrael, we had a Bet HaMikdash. And you look at the, the prime, right in the beginning, right? It's Shlomo Amalek. What Shlomo Amalek did, he went and he took a thousand wives. And he had a great noble plan, really unbelievable. And in fact, it succeeded for a really long time. But then what happened was, Shlomo Amalek became old. Tanakh tells Tanakh tells And the plan sort of began to backfire. He can no longer properly supervise all of his household. The woman, you know, whom Shlomo Amalek went and he converted, they sort of were backsliding into their old habits. They all used to practice Avodah idol worship. And now it's starting to come back. And can you imagine now, out of all places, right after the Bet HaMidash was built, where was Avodah Was in the house of the king, but the house of Shlomo Amalek. And then what happened is, is from then on, they could never eradicate it completely from the house of the king. There was always some sort of idolatry going on over there. Even when you had the good kings that they came to the throne, they could not eradicate it. They tried. They kept kosher, they kept Shabbos, they learned, they did everything, but there was a poison. And that poison was Avodah was idolatry. And we know that there's nothing worse than idolatry. It was, it was, sim- it was a hopeless situation. And you want to know who saved the situation? As crazy as it sounds, Nebuchadnezzar comes along. And yes, he killed thousands upon thousands of Jewish people. And he destroyed the Bet HaMikdash. But there was also one thing that came out of that. And that was, is that he rid of, of the illness of Ovadah The royal house, what happened now is that at the, after the destruction of the Bet HaMikdash, lost all of its authority. So there was no more idolatry in the royal house of Yehuda. It, it finished. And can you imagine? For 15 generations this went on. 15 generations, you had prophets, you had righteous people, you had Chachamim, Tzadikim, Nevi'im, you had all figuring out how are we going to go and eradicate the problem of Ovadah in the king's house? How are we going to do that? And imagine, says Rabbi Victor Miller, if somebody would have came and told him and says, you know, there's going to come a Gentile king and he's going to heal everybody. They'll be like, are you crazy? But that's what happened. Nebuchadnezzar came and took out, took, got rid of all the royalty. There was no royalty and there was no Avodah as well. Then let's fast forward to the second uh, Bet HaMikdash. The second Bet HaMikdash, it was the days of the Hashmonaim. And uh, there was a group of people named the Tzidukim. They sort of got the upper hand in the royal house. And they did, unfortunately, tremendous amount of persecution to the people. They controlled the office of the Kohen Gadol. They controlled, you know, a lot of what the Bet HaMikdash was going on. And the reason that they wanted to control these weren't the righteous tzaddikim. There was, uh, you know, the people on the other side. The reason why they wanted to control it is Bet HaMikdash was a very attractive thing. You had tremendous amount of money that was coming in there. You had the Machatzit shekel. You had also great amount of honor. You had the Kohen Gadol. It's a crazy honor in the Jewish people. So generation after generation, the Jewish people suffered from these, from these group of people. And there was no way to get rid of it. Until what happens, all of a sudden the Romans come along. The Romans come along and destroy the Bet HaMikdash. And it's interesting, right after the destruction of the Bet HaMikdash, the, you don't hear anymore about the Tzedukim. The Tzedukim just finished. All they wanted, they didn't care you know, about God, about the holiness. They, care, they wanted money and power. And the Bet HaMikdash gave them that. But the second that it didn't offer them that, that's it. They took off. They left. 
So all of a sudden, the Romans came and sort of cleaned out the excess, you know, I don't want to say anything bad, the excess that shouldn't have been in the Bet HaMikdash. Let's keep on fast-forwarding. After Rabbi Huda Nasi passed away, this is when he uh, sealed the, the Mishnah. The Mishnah was sealed in the year roughly, uh, you know, 199 Common Era. The, what happened was after that, there was persecution that began in Eretz Israel, and it became worse and worse, and this is really because of the Christians. What happened was, is that the Christians converted a certain emperor, and this was later known to be Emperor Constantine. Constantine means uh, faithful, so that's why they named him the Emperor of Constantine. He, then what happened was, is that once they converted the emperor to Christianity, he forced converted the entire Roman Empire into Christianity. Now, until this time, the Romans had no religious animosity towards the Jewish people. What they wanted when they destroyed the temple, when they wanted, when they, you know, fought against the Jews, it wasn't because of religion. It was because they wanted money. They wanted power. They wanted what what Israel held. But when the Christians came along, that's something else. It wasn't any more about money. It was about it was, it was it was about this hatred towards the Jewish people. The persecution against the Jews at this point in time intensified. So what happened was is that the Jewish people had to leave Eretz Yehuda. They had to leave the certain area of Israel, and they either went to the different part of Israel in the Galil, or they had to travel to Bavel. And what was taking place at Bavel during that time? This is where you had Rav Ashi. Rav Ashi was leading the community over there and established friendly relations with the government in Bavel, in Babylonia. And there the Jews lived relatively well, you know, with the, you know, with good relations into the government. However, the Rav Ashi saw that this is not going to last. Something is, this, this type of goodness is not going to last. So what he did is that he took, and him and his, his disciples and his, his peers, they went and they took this gigantic task and they're going to seal the Talmud, the Talmud Bavli. Now the Talmud existed at this point in time, but it wasn't in full order like we have it today. So in order to seal it property, properly, you have to get the sages from all over the world to come to one place to review all the things and to see how it's going to be put in and what's going to be put in and which place and so on and so forth. There was one problem, is that many of these righteous tzaddikim that needed to be in Bavel, they were living in Israel at the time, they were living in Al Yisrael. And that's why it's interesting, we have two, two uh, uh, Talmuds, you have the Talmud Yerushalmi and the Talmud Bavli. Not going to get into it, but Talmud Bavli is the most authoritative. So when they, needed, when, when they wanted to go and close the Talmud Bavli, they needed all the sages in one place. But the problem was is that when the Jewish people lived in Al Yisrael, you can't just leave Israel. You can't just leave it. It's like I said, you have to stay in Israel. You have to, there must be a reason. So what happened was, is all of a sudden the church fathers came along and they started butchering people, the Jewish people in El Tisrael. So the sages had to run out. They had no other choice. Where did they go? They went right to Bavel. So at this point in time, Rav Ashi sees how everything is cutting into place over here. That all the sages are here. There's good relations. All of a sudden, the sages from Israel are coming in also. Rav Ashi said, this is the time that we have to seal the Talmud. This is the time we have to seal the Talmud, you know, Bavli. And this is why it's interesting. You find a lot of the, the sages in Eretz Israel, like, like Rav Mani, Rav Asi, Rav Hanina, Rav Yossi, all these rabbis, they, they're mentioned in the Talmud Bavli because they had to go there. They had to go into, into Bavel. So, says Rabbi Victor Miller, you, you know, when you look at history, we discovered that very, very traumatic and bad things. And by the way, don't get me wrong, it's not a great thing that it happened that we could say, oh, you know what, it was worth it for all the Jewish people to buy. No, we don't know. We don't know all the, the calculations. But one thing we knew is, look at how Rabbi Victor Miller goes and says, look at what good came out, even from the worst part in Jewish history. Something good came out of it. There's some, there is a bigger plan in it. And says Rabbi Victor Miller, he quotes a pasuk in Tehillim, Kufra Falev, chapter 121, verse 1. Very famous pasuk in Tehilim. Shir la ma'alot, el ha'arim me'ayin yavo ezri. We go, we say, I raise my eyes to the mountains. From where will my help come? Me'ayin yavo ezri. Me'ayin means from nowhere, from nothing. 
What does that mean in Kabbalah? Like the, the fact that ayin means, means, means God. Why? Because what happens is, is that when you have no hope, then you turn to God. When you have hope, then you turn to that hope. Be like, okay, can you help me? Can you save me? When you have no hope, then what happens is you realize there's nothing else that I can speak to other than God. From where is my salvation going to come? When you hit rock bottom, when you have nowhere else to go, that's where your salvation is going to come. You want to know why? Because all of a sudden, that's going to be God. All of a sudden, you're going to look to God. The famous concept, there's no atheist in the foxhole. So many times, we go through life and we go through troubles and difficulties and we don't know where our salvation is going to come from. And the craziest part or the most beautiful part I could say is when the salvation comes from the place that we least expected it. Now, the importance to understand this that we don't always see the big picture. But one thing the halakha tells us, the Gemara tells us, that that anything, whether we see it or not, everything that God does is for the good. It's for the best. I want to bring it, I want to branch us off into three different categories. Number one is how you can actually gain from a loss. Number two is how you can be saved from a greater loss. And number three, how the loss can actually save you. Because the focus over here is what I really want to go on is, and Bizarre Hashem in this, in this class is to focus on when, how do you see God in the bad? In the good? Fine. That's fairly easy. In the regular? Fairly easy. Let's, let's, let's focus on the bad. Or what seems to be the bad. There was once a very kind duke who rented uh, what the dukes did in the olden days. That they rented their homes and the lands uh, to people. And people, this is where they people flourish with their businesses. And they, and they paid a certain fee for the businesses and for the homes to the duke. There was one Jew who used to rent from this particular duke. And he rented a certain amount, 300 gold coins a year. And the Jew was very, very careful. Every time he would give exactly that amount on time. He always paid on time, never gave any problems. One day, the duke goes and tells his tenants that he's going to be leaving for an extended period of time, and he's putting his manager as the one in charge. Now, this Jew knew that this manager was a money-hungry, you know, anti-Semite. He knew this is going to spell trouble for him. And there's nothing else that he could do. And as soon as the duke leaves, guess what happens? All of a sudden, this manager goes over to the Jew and says, by the way, you were paying 300? Oh, the, it went up. It's 600 now. Says, you want to live here? You want to run your business here? You're going to pay double what you paid last year. And the Jew's like, come on, you got, you can't, I can't, I'm not going to be able to make a profit, I'm not going to be able to live. Nothing to talk, nothing to talk about. It's 600 or you get out of here. The Jew had no, op- no option. He started, you know, every penny he would save. And payday arrived and he was able to get 540 gold coins, 500 and, I'm sorry, and 80 gold coins. He was 20 gold coins short. And he goes and he brings this, which is already 280 gold coins more than he paid last year. And he's hoping that the, this manager will go and forgive him. And he goes to his manager and says, listen, I got almost everything. I'm missing 20 gold coins. Please, please, you know, just let it slide this time. And the manager says, what? Let's slide 20 gold coins? Significant amount. He says, absolutely not. He goes and he takes his Jewish child. He ties his arm to a post and he whips him 20 times with like this powerful whip, leather whip. He whips him 20 times, one for each gold coin. And the Jew is sitting over there. He's screaming and he's kind of like, why God? I'm the only Jew over here. He's the only one who's making me crazy. Why? And he received a brutal 20 lashes. Got scars on his back. He went through a tremendous amount of suffering. Finally, the Duke returns. And the, the Jew goes right over to the Duke and says, I need a meeting with the Duke. He sits down with the Duke and he, said, he tells the Duke, he says, you know what happened? You left. The guy went and doubled my fees. And when I didn't pay, he went and he whipped me. And the Duke says, what? My manager did that? How dare he? He says, you're such a valued customer. Are you kidding me? He calls over the manager. 
And he tells the manager that every whip that you gave him, you're going to pay this Jew a hundred gold coins. And he goes over to the, ma- you know, to the manager of the Jew and says, how many times did he whip you? And the Jew says, he whipped me 20 times. And the Duke says, and says you're going to pay him now 2,000 gold coins, which is a tremendous amount of money at that time. And the, the Jew is sitting over there, he takes this bag of money, and his wife was waiting outside of the Duke's castle, you know, to, you know, to go back home with, uh, with, his, with her husband. And she sees that her husband's carrying a wad of cash, like a crazy amount of money, but he's sad, he's depressed. So the wife goes over to him and he says to the husband, my dear husband, why are you so sad? He says, you just made more money than you have ever made in your life. Now you were wealthy now. So the Jew says, as if only, if only I would have received 40 lashes. If I would have received 40 lashes, I would have gotten 4,000 gold coins. He says, imagine what happens. This is what happens when a person undergoes suffering and we want it to stop. And again, we don't ask God for suffering. But when we get in the world to come, we get into the next world and we're going to see the value of the suffering. We're going to be like, what? I complained for this? I complained for this? Look how much I gained from this. I gained 2,000 gold coins. Then the question is asked, couldn't God just give this, you know, Jew the money without the suffering, without the whipping? Did he have to really go and get whipped, you know, 20 times to make 2,000 gold coins? Let him just find 2,000 gold coins in a treasure or whatever, hun, while he's plowing or who knows what. So the answer is, is one of the reasons that we have in Munah that we have faith, is that we have to train ourselves to view life's occurrence in the pop- proper perspective. And if a person was, you know, think about the, the aspect like this. Let's say someone, God forbid, had a broken bone. And they go into the hospital, and the, the surgeon is doing a surgery, and it turns out that they see a certain growth over there, and that, then they go on this life, this man's life saved because of that broken bone. So of course, you know, he's going to be like, wow, thank God that I had this broken bone because it saved me from who knows this, this dangerous growth. But the question is, why do we have to go and, 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 and think of it that way? Why did God even put us in that situation to begin with? Let it, we, us not have the broken bone and let us not have the growth. The famous question that everybody asks. God is the one that put us into the problem. Why do we have to go and be thankful for the problem to go out? And the answer is, is that every ounce of pain, every affliction that we have, every suffering that a person goes through in this world is calculated to the T by God. Meaning that we needed to go through that suffering anyways. That was going to happen. There was a kapara, there was an atonement, whatever it is. We needed to go through that suffering. So you know what God does? God, in His infinite kindness, He goes and He makes this suffering serve a, like a, a dual purpose. Those people that they go through the hardship, now the hardship is going to be their benefit to them. This is where we could see that you have people that even though they had a loss, but they gained from their loss. The guy who got whipped, you know, so many times, has gained from it. They, they went and they gave for it. And some, that's, that's step number one. Sometimes we don't see the big picture. And sometimes we see that from our pain, from our suffering, is where we get the loss. You always hear these, you know, stories where you have people that go and get fired from the job and then they end up going and opening up a business and becoming a billionaire. And then they see, okay, you know what? It really turned out for the best. So step one is that when someone goes through a loss, you don't know what gain you will have from this loss. Let's go to step two. Step two is that sometimes you're, when you go through a loss, you're saved from even a greater loss. There was a rabbi by the name of Rabbi Moshe, Moshe Scherer. He related this story that when he was very young, he uh, came down with a very, very severe illness. And he was running a very, very high fever. And the mother went to the doctor and the doctor gave him a, a certain prescription. The problem was back then there was, you know, the insurance wasn't as it was today. And the medication cost a lot of money. She didn't know what to do. She ran to the pharmacist. 
And she's going to the pharmacist, and the pharmacist wasn't there. The assistant was running the shop. And she goes and she cries to this assistant and says, listen, I can't afford the medication. My son is dying. My son is so sick. He has such a severe illness. Please, I am begging you. I have only X amount of money. Can you please give me the med? I'm giving you everything that I have. Can you give me the medicine for this, for this, uh, for this price? And the assistant felt so bad. And he says, you know what? Fine. You know, he agreed. He went and he collected the medicine, put it in a bottle and gave it to the woman. The woman was so happy. She took the medicine and she started running home so that her son could start on the medication regimen. And as she was running, she tripped and in slow motion, that glass bottle fell into the air, started spinning and landed on the floor and smashed in so many pieces. And she is, she's like, you gotta be kidding me. She had zero, zero money left. She goes and she picks up all the, you know, scraps that she has and she goes back to the, back to the pharmacy. She's like, what is he gonna say now? Now she has no money. She's sitting over there, tears going down her cheeks. She's like, what am I gonna say? What am I gonna do? She goes in and now the pharmacist came back and the pharmacist was by the, by the, by the store over there. And she tells him this whole story. She says, your, you know, your assistant was so nice and he, he, I gave him a certain amount of money and he decided that he was gonna give me the medicine to save my son with this. But now, it broke. And I have no money left. Please, can you do something? And the pharmacist, you know, felt really bad. He says, you know what? You know, fine. Yeah, I'll do it. Let me see what medicine that he gave you. He takes the medicine and he starts smelling it. And he said, uh, what was the illness that your uh, son had? And she tells him the, you know, the illness that he had. And he said, you don't know how many angels you have protecting you. He says, my assistant has given you the wrong medication. This is, you could tell, by the way, that this story is not a story that I would say nowadays because of lawsuits, people wouldn't obviously say that. But he went and he said, my assistant gave you the wrong medication. If you would have given this to your, to your child, this would have seriously endangered your child. I don't know if your child would have came out of this. But now I'm going to give you the correct medication. And he went and he gave her the correct medication. And as she's walking home, she's thinking, she says, look at that. My biggest downfall, the fact that I lost the medication, the fact that it broke, I was like, God, are you kidding me? He's like, I have nothing. I gave everything I had for this. And now you're going to take the medication? Little did she know that all God was doing was saving her son's life. And sometimes you go through losses and the losses literally save you. I want to share you through a famous story said many times, but this is just an introduction to the next story that I want to say. There was once a wise man who knew how to speak to the birds. And uh, there was a certain, like, uh, call it in Israel, it's a nudnik. Nudnik is uh, someone who's a pest. Constantly, he's like, come on, I know you speak to the birds. I know you know the language. Tell it to me, please. Tell me the language of the birds. Finally, the guy was driving, you know, this wise man crazy. The wise man says, fine, you know what? If you leave me alone, I'll teach you the language of the birds. He teaches him over the period of months the language of the birds. And one day he's walking back so happily. He's whistling. He's in his mood. He's, you know, he's great. He understands the birds. And suddenly he hears the birds chirping. And he says, oh, what are they going to say? And here it says, ah, oh, you see that man who's walking right under us? His warehouse will catch fire tonight. And he's like, what? And he listens. And he's like, come again? And they keep on repeating it. His warehouse is going to catch fire tonight. He runs straight home and he clears out his entire warehouse. Lo and behold, that night, a huge fire erupts, burns out his entire warehouse, but all his, all his products were, were saved because he took it out. The next day, he's so happy. He's walking along. He saved this, uh, you know, now he has to build. But whatever, the loss wasn't so great. And all of a sudden, you hear the birds singing that there's going to be a drastic rise in the price of silver. He's like, oh, look at that. He goes and he runs into the market and he, borrows, and he buys a large quantities of silver. And the next you know, few weeks, the, the price of silver jumps and he makes a killing off it. A few weeks will go by. And all of a sudden, he hears the bird saying, ah, oh, this person that's walking past by us, he is going to die. And he's like, what? And he hears them again. They're singing again. This guy is going to die. 
And he runs over to this wise man, and he says, you got to help me out over here. You know, it was, it was all nice and dandy. I, you know, saved my warehouse. I was able to go and, uh, you know, make some money on the silver. But now they're telling me they're going to die. I, I don't know how to save myself from that. And the wise man goes and says, if you would have lost your products, your produce, and you would have not become rich by making this fantastic profit on the silver, then you would have had the suffering that you would have had, and you wouldn't have need to die. But now you went and you tried to outsmart God. Says that God, you know, there was a, there was a bad decree on you. God was going to get that decree taken care of by the burning of the factory. But now, not only you went away, you made money from the silver that you weren't supposed to. Now, unfortunately, the bad decree is going to come into fruition. This is just an introduction to the following story. There was once a Gerah Hasid. He fell into really, really difficult times, and he had to declare bankruptcy. So he went over to his rabbi. The Rebbe was the Chadusha Arim. And he goes over to the Chadusha Arim, the rabbi, and he goes and he says, please, he wanted to give him advice and a blessing. He said that he has a wealthy brother and he could go and he could borrow money. And he, and he, and he would be able to borrow money and sort of, you know, set himself up again, but he wanted the blessing from the rabbi first. So the rabbi is thinking, he's concentrating. Then the rabbi opens his eyes, looks at him and he says, don't go to your brother. God will help you. So the rabbi says something fine. Months pass, the situation of this Hasid did not change. Finally, his wife urged him, says, listen, go to the rabbi again. Try to convince him that we got nothing. Let, it, let you go to your brother and get some money so you can rebuild again. So he goes back to the rabbi and he explained that his wife is broken, is down. You know, he needs to go and he needs to, to borrow money. He could go and put himself back in his feet again. Let me just get the blessing from the rabbi that he could borrow the money. And the rabbi once again, you know, said, I, you know, I really feel for you, but he advised against taking a loan. Don't do it. A few months go by, and this time the wife was nagging her husband, nagging her husband. You have to approach your brother. You have to get the loan. We have to go and support the family. So not knowing what to do, he didn't go to the rabbi anymore, and he went to the brother. The brother heard his financial struggle. He says, of course, he wrote him a large check, and he took that money. He invested it carefully. He stabilized his affairs. He went, and he's you know, handling this business and that business, and slowly, slowly, things seem to get better again. A few months go by, and suddenly this Hasid gets down with a very serious illness. And he goes to the doctors, and the doctors tell him he just has a few weeks left to live. It's a serious, so there's nothing that he can do. His wife goes and starts thinking, and she realizes that this whole predicament arose because she failed to listen to the rabbi's words. So she went, the, the, the husband was too sick to go. She went and she sent a message to ask a blessing on her a husband's behalf to the rabbi. When the Chadush Arim heard this, he explained sadly to the messenger, he said, I, you know, he said he saw that poverty that this person, this Hasid was supposed to endure, was going to be an atonement. It was going to be a kapara for him. And with emunah, and with endurance, and with hoping and praying, praying to God, the difficult times would have passed, and eventually he would have made back his money. He says, but now that you went ahead of the decree, I says, I can't change the decree anymore. And, you know, let's not finish where that story ended off. But not always... Is it possible to go to such a great rabbi and have clear instructions, don't do this and do that? Majority times in our life, we have one option. And that option is to rely on HaKadosh Baruch Hu, to rely on God, the one who knows everything, the one who created the world, or the one who was there from the beginning of time until the end of time. That's all that we have to rely on. And we don't know how many times the difficulties that we go through our life are just preventing so much greater difficulties. And all we need to do is have that emunah, have that bitachon, and keep on just plowing through it.
There was once a person that was playing a, you know, a certain sport and the ball went you know, like full force and hit him in, in his eye. And it, it, it was serious, it was bleeding, and they, they put a bandage and they rushed him to the hospital. In the hospital, they put him on this like, bandage and said, they're not allowed to go, he has to be in bed rest for two weeks and he can't touch the bandage. So after two weeks, he's sitting there and he's sitting there nonstop with, you know, in his bed, on bed rest with a bandage, not able to say anything. His wife had to take care of him completely. Then his wife goes, two weeks go by, the wife brings him to the hospital. As she brings him to the hospital, they're slowly, slowly unraveling the bandage. And as they take the bandage off, all of a sudden, the eye began to gush out blood, like projectile, like vomiting. It was like, you know, ejecting out. The wife was in the room. She saw this. She's like, oh my gosh, what is happening? She thought that's for sure. It's, it's a failure and it's healing. And she fainted on the spot. She's like passed out, fell down on the floor. Uh, when she woke up, the doctors go and explain to her. He says, you don't understand. So the fact that his eye started gushing out blood, that means that now his eye is going to be able to go and have a full recovery. Because what happened was when he got injured, there was dirt in the eye. And the eye, it, we, because the eye is so sensitive, we weren't able to fully clean the dirt. And who knows how many infections would have came out of it. But what happened was, is that it started bleeding so forcefully from the inside that the blood washed the eye out of all the dirt and prevented any infections. So now the doctor says, now I'm confident he's going to have a full recovery in his vision. Beforehand, I didn't know. Now I know. So many times in life we go and we go through certain difficulties and we're like, why? And we don't realize this little difficulty is going to save us from so much more. And there are countless, countless stories, uh, you know, uh, during the September 11. I want to share with you too that happened where you have the bad until only turns out to save you from even much worse bad. There was a family that sent their oldest daughter to sleepaway camp for the first time in the summer of 2001. And while she was there, she slipped, she fell, and she broke a bone. And the parents were furious. We pay so much money over here. You don't have safety over here. And they threatened to sue the camp. And the director spoke to, you know, to the family, and they tried to, and eventually they succeeded in persuading the parents not to take legal action. Shortly after that, the father had to go. It was September 11, 2001. And the, the, the father had to go and bring his daughter to the hospital to go and get her cast removed. And uh, what happened was, is that as he was going and accompanying his daughter to the hospital, he hears about the plane going into the World Trade Center, the place where he worked. And if his daughter would not have broken her bone, and if he wouldn't have gone with her to the hospital, he would have been in that building during that time. And there's another story, just, there's so many stories during that, you know, the, the you know, September 11th, the, the unfortunate event, even though it was terrible. But there were so many stories that we could see God's hand over here. There was a person by the name of Joel. And he has, he had a, a appointment in Midtown Manhattan. So he woke up early, made sure to get to that appointment bright and early. As he's about to walk into the meeting, the meeting was canceled at the last, me- at the last moment. So his immediate, you know, response is, you know, get on the, you know, take a cab or get on the, the other train back to his office, which was on the 102nd floor of the Twin Towers. And as he's walking, as he's, as he's rounding the corner, I don't know if anybody has ever walked in Manhattan. There's a, well, not now, but generally there's about 7 billion people walking on one street. And as he's like rushing back to the office, he makes a sharp turn, you know, you know, like on where the building was. And he bumped into right into somebody who was standing right in front of him. And this person was holding a hot cup of coffee and they bumped into each other and the cup of coffee went all over his suit, went all over his shirt and tie and pants. And he was soaking with like burning, you know, hot coffee. And, you know, now he figures he's, he can't go back to the office like this. So he decides that instead of going into the office, he's going to go into his apartment. His apartment 
had a view of the World Trade Center. He gets into his apartment, he changes, and as he's sitting over there, he picks up his phone to call out, uh, up his boss to tell him that he's going to be a bit late to his, uh, you know, to, you know, to, into the office. And as he's dialing, he's looking at the off, he's looking at the building from his window, and the, the scariest thing, see, you know, he, he sees, you know, this, this Boeing, this, this 747 plane fly straight into the second tower, and he, that's where his office was, and he sees the plane go right into it, and he's panicking, he's like, wait a minute, that's my office, and he was on the phone, and the phone all of a sudden suddenly went, you know, it, it went busy, and he kept on dialing other people in the office, he's like going crazy, and he tried to contact so many people in his office, nobody was able to answer, and unfortunately, we all know the end to that story. But this really affected Joel. It really is like, it's like, I was supposed to be there. And even though Joel was a Jewish person, he, you know, religion was never part of his life. Some time goes by and he sees an ad for, read, you know, learn how to read in Hebrew. And he said, you know what, let me, let me learn. Something, something sparked inside of him. He ended up, you know, going to this class and this one thing led to another and he ended up becoming a full-fledged Orthodox Jew. Where he goes and says, you know, the, the spilled cup of coffee not only saved Joel's physical life, but it also saved his spiritual life. You know, in, in so many of these stories, we see the good, you know, shortly right afterwards. But in life, it's not always like that. We don't always get to see that gain. We don't always get to see how we were saved. And when we do, we should use it for chizuk. But when we don't, we have to go and we have to have this emunah, this faith that that no matter what happens, there's a greater plan over here. Whether we see it or whether we didn't, there is a greater plan. I want to share with you a few short stories from Rabbi David Asher. And he goes and he says that if we would know the reason that everything that happens to us, not only we would never complain in our life, the words not fear would never come out of our mouths, but we would also beg God to do what he did. And I deal with so many people, and uh, you know, when people are going through difficulties, they 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 get upset at God, they get angry at God. They're like, "I didn't sign up for this." And the the sad thing is, or the I don't even know if it's a sad, you know, is the is the right terminology to use. But if we would actually see what that bad rally did for us, not only we would not complain, we would say, "God, thank you so much for what you have done." There was a story told about a young man who uh, was in the you know Holocaust, and he was him and his sister was the only surviving family. His entire family got got wiped out, and they were hiding. They were hiding from the Nazis in a certain bunker. And when uh, the the boy, which was older, he decided that it was his responsibility to protect his sister. It was the only living family member that he had, and he is going to leave the bunker and he's going to search for food. He's going to put himself at risk. So he goes and he searches for food. He comes back a few hours later and he sees that his sister is gone. And he was told that the Germans found her and they brought him into the Gestapo headquarters. They brought him to the German over there headquarters in the area and into the, the, the girl. They took the girl and the boy was like, are you kidding me? My only sister? He didn't even think twice. He dropped the food that he, that he was able to get and he ran straight into the headquarters. He barged right in. Little kid barged right in and he said, give me back my sister. The Nazis see this little Jewish kid running back at him. First of all, it's like they're just like coming into the, you know, the headquarters. They could just like capture him. And they start like laughing at this guy. Like, are you serious? And he's like, I am not leaving this place. And they're in their mind. They're like, yeah, you're not leaving this place until I get my sister. So the general was sitting over there looking through some documents. And the general looked at this boy and he says, you know what? 
He says, when, when you, your, your sister's never going to come out of here. He says, you know, when your sister, when you, when you have here growing out of your palms, then I will return your sister. So the boy picks up his hand and opens up his hand. And in there, he had here growing out of his palm. And the entire, like, office were like, El Diablo! Oh, well, that was Spanish. Whatever that is in German. They were like, the devil, are you kidding me? How did he just do that? They were like, if your hair, you know, has, you know, if your palm has hair growing out of it, we'll send you. And he's like, bam, in your face. Look at the hand. Hair growing out of my palm. And they were so shocked. They were like, this guy is, there's something wrong with this guy. They were like, you know what? You know, take your sister and get out of here. We, like, we don't want to have anything to deal with you. And he goes and he takes his sister and he leaves. The... The story behind the story is that many, many years prior to that, the boy was was going and he was reaching out for some sort of, you know, hot water. And the hot water, he was a little kid at the time, the hot water went and spilled all over his arm. The little kid, the hot, hot water spilled all over it and he had severe, severe burns. The parents rushed into the hospital and be like, look at this cute little kid. Why did he have to have burns? So much pain, so much suffering. Why does he have to have burn on, on his arm? And the, the, they rushed into the hospital. The hospital goes and they did a skin graft. Now there was, they, they, they took skin from a part of the body that has here. So when they, after they did the skin graft, you know, eventually here started growing out of that part. Now, if the parents would have known that that burn that this child had would save not only him, but would save his sister, they would say, thank you so much. Everything that God does for the best is going to save our, but unfortunately we don't see that. The trick is to see it before we don't see it. There was another story that was a Jewish boy that he was brought into the Polish army. This is during World War One, And the parents were devastated. They went and they, they knew when, you know, you had a Jewish kid going into the army, it was not only physical danger, but it was also spiritual danger. So they went to the Chafetz Chaim. They went to the Holy Chafetz Chaim for a blessing that he should be saved from the draft. So after a few moments with the Chafetz Chaim, the, the Chafetz Chaim goes up and he says, uh, you know, what would be so bad if this boy learned how to shoot a gun? And the parents were like, What? This is a Jewish boy you're talking about. Like, you know, he's a yeshiva boy. What does he need to learn how to shoot a, shoot a gun? And it almost sounded like the rabbi was cursing their son. So they decided that they were going to go and they were going to bribe the doctor that does the medical evaluation to go and say that this, this kid is not fit for condition. It's not medically, you know, fit for service. They bribed the doctor and the doctor wrote down on his notes, this kid is not fit for service. And as he's signing off his document, the general walks into the medical examination room. And he sees the doctor writing a note. And he says, let me see what you wrote. And he looks at the note. He looks at the kid. And he says, what's wrong with this kid? He says, this kid is perfectly healthy. The doctor got punished. The kid, he says, this kid is going in my, you know, in, you know, in my, in my section of the army. He's coming into my division. And there he was, uh, he was brought into the division of the general. And he was in charge of assembling machine guns. And not only that, he also learned how to assemble machine guns, disassemble the machine guns, and also how to use them. Now, Miraculously, he survived the war, and several decades later, during World War II, he found himself in, in the Warsaw Ghetto. And there he managed to escape from the ghetto with a group of friends, and they ran deep into the woods, and there they met a band of partitions, partisans. These are uh, groups of people where they decided they wanted to fight against the Germans, but a majority of them were not Jewish. In fact, some of these, these partisans were actually anti-Semites. And they're like, why do we need you in our group over here? You're going to slow us down. You know, we should just kill you. We, we have no use for you. So all of a sudden, this boy goes and says, well, listen, he says, I see you have here uh, some broken machine guns. He says, I could fix it, and I could hit any target that you want. And they were all like, what? Let's see. 
And he goes, and within a few minutes, he takes the broken machine guns, he fixes them, and they put them opposite targets, and he hits every single target bullseye. Who knows, you know, like when, when he goes and he's, and he's thinking about it, he says the words that were spoken by the Chafetz Chaim, how true are they? When the Chafetz Chaim said decades earlier, what would be so bad if he learned how to shoot a gun? We don't realize how much it saves, how much all these problems saves us. There was once a story where a, a young girl fell into a pool and she was underwater for several minutes. And miraculously, somehow she survived without any traces of, uh, without any trace of brain damage. So the doctors wanted to do some investigation. This is not a medical, you know, normal thing. This is a medical miracle. So they realized that this girl suffered from something called sleep apnea. This is a condition which is, you know, enlarged her tonsils and it trained her body to survive on low levels of oxygen. Sometimes the people that suffer from sleep apnea, they stop breathing during the night. They, they literally stop. They have to have this, uh, you know, the CPAP machine that they need while they're sleeping. And the parents who, you know, how many struggles and anguish, they had to go sleepless nights to go with, you know, their, you know, the, their, this little girl with, you know, to the doctors and figure out what's wrong with her sleep. Little did they know that this condition ended up saving her life. There was another boy who suffered from terrible seizures, terrible, terrible seizures that, you know, he couldn't survive without it, that he needed to go through surgery and they need to remove a certain part of his brain. And they removed this part of the brain. And a few years later, this boy was hit by a car. And hit by a car, he flew and he landed straight on his head. And, you know, they rushed into the hospital. Amazingly, he survived. And the doctor said that the reason that he survived is because there was a place in the brain for the blood to drain. Like, because it was a missing piece of the brain, the blood was able to drain in that area. And that's why he was able to survive. Now we see over here, story after story after story after story, where you see all these difficult things that happen in a person's life that actually turn out to the best. But the truth is, when we're dealing in our own life, we're like, okay, that's nice in the story. We can see the full picture, but in my own life, when something bad is happening, how am I supposed to go and live that way? And in fact, this is the way that Sadiqim, the righteous people, this is how they live their lives. You look at, um, you know, at, at Sarah, Sarah Emenu. It says when, you know, when she passed away in Bereshit, chapter 23, verse 1, it says, Vayihu chaye Sarah me'ashana, it was 100 years, ve'esrim shana, and 20 years, ve'sheva shanim, and 7 years, meaning it was 100, she lived 127 years. This is chaye Sarah, this was the life of Sarah. Says Rashi over there, it says, kulan shavin letova. All the 127 years of Sarah Imenu's life was equally good. Now the question was, are you kidding me? Did anybody read the Chumash? How is that all the 227 years how Sarah had an easy life? Sarah was taken captive by two different kings. She was forced to wander with her husband for many years until they settled. She had the pain of not having a child until the age of 90. She was tormented by her maidservant Hagar. And then, not to say what happened with Hagar's son Yishmael. How much misery that he caused on. And then, after 37 years, when she finally, finally had a child by the name of Yitzhak, she became aware that her husband was going to go and take her son and slaughter him for God. And she passed away. All her years were equally good. Are you kidding me? How was it equally good? How does Rashi say that Kulan Shavin Latova, all of 127 years of Sarai Menu's life was equally good? How? How could that be good? Says that Dalke Musa goes and says that Sadiqim, righteous people, they go and they consider all their sufferings that they go through in their life as a good thing. Either it atones for whatever sins that they had. Every, every single suffering test, nisayon, whatever that they're going through, they look at it as a gift from God. 
and says that Akimus the day of which Yitzchak was born and the day which she was taken captive by Paro were equally good. It's a level of where you see the righteous, the high level. But the truth is, it's not only, you know, there was a very famous story, and in some stories throughout this series, I will, I will repeat, and I know that I'm repeating it because it's so important. There's a famous story by Rab Zisha. Rab Zisha is the third generation of Hasidim. So if you have the Baal Shem Tov, then you have the Magid, and then you have Rab Zisha and Rabbi Lamelech Melizinitz. So you have Rab Zisha, um, from Hanipal. He went, and he had a terrible life. Terrible, terrible Yisuim. His wife was always sick. He lost many children. He suffered from illness. He had severe, severe poverty. No money. Like, nothing was going for him. But yet, somehow, he was always in such a level of happiness that no one could understand it. He was always so happy. And one time, there was a student that asked his rabbi, he says, I don't understand. The Gemara teaches us, right, that we a person has to go and make a blessing on the bad events, with the same simcha as one makes a blessing on good events. How is that possible? How is it possible, the student was asking, to say, let's be practical, Rabbi. Come on. How are you supposed to be, how are you supposed to live your life that way? So the Rabbi says, I can't answer you, but go to see the Rebbe, Reb Zisha. So the student goes, and this, this Rabbi, Reb Zisha, he was not only was he such a holy man, he was also a hidden tzaddik, meaning that nobody knew of him, of his level, only until afterwards, much later in his life, that people really understand his level. But in, for the majority of his life, he lived a simple life that people thought of him as just like a regular simple Jew who was always happy. And in fact, when this student went over to the, you know, to the town to try to find, you know, this rabbi, he says, do you guys know a rabbi, there's a rabbi, Reb Zisha? And they're like, there's no Reb Zisha, a rabbi, Reb Zisha in this town over here. So they went, he went from place to place, and no one knew. And finally, one, he's like, Zisha, you talking about Z- Yeah, of course, Zisha, he's right over there. He's all the way at the end end town, the poorest part of town. And they go, and he travels, the student goes and travels to this poor part of town, and he knocks on the door, and he sees over there, the door, he opens up, and there is Reb Zisha. And he's sitting over there, and he says, you know, are you, you know, are you Reb Zisha? And he says, yeah, Zisha, yeah, that's me. What can I help you with? And he says, you know, I was learning with my rabbi, and my rabbi told me that I have to come to you. How are you supposed to go and accept challenges with a happy face? How are you supposed to go and live life in a happy face when no matter, when bad things happen to you? And the rabbi goes and he says, he says, your rabbi sent you to me? He says, I, I don't know why. He says, I, I never had a bad day in my life, you know? I, I don't know why. He, I have no answer to give you. And the student, all I had to do was take one look at this rabbi's house, and he knew the answer. He says, this rabbi, no matter how much suffering he went through, he never had a bad day in his life. Because he lived his life as kol man Everything was good. There was no such thing as a bad day. And even though us, the regular people, we don't always feel that way. And sometimes we let our emotions get over us. And we, you know, unfortunately we can't complain a certain time. The, I want to share with you a story from Rabbi Elimelech Biederman. Oh, what a powerful story. There was once a rabbi by the name of Rabbi Avraham. He was a director of an organization called Lev Shomea. This is an organization in Israel that has a telephone hotline that, to, you know, it assists people in distress. This is, you know, someone that ran has a lot of connections, tried to go and help people in distress. One day he gets a phone call from a father. And the father goes and tells him, he says, listen, I have a, my, uh, you know, my oldest son. He's about to become engaged. And he's learning in a certain yeshiva. And he made a certain mistake and he violated one of the yeshiva rules. And the yeshiva decided that they're going to expel him from the yeshiva. And the father was very nervous. He says, if the girl's family would hear this, 
they would call off the shidduch, even though the, it wasn't a major transgression, but for some reason, they decided they're going to make an example of this boy. And it's going to look very bad on this boy and the shidduch that he's in the middle of, of working on. So he calls up this Rabbi Avram and he says, can you do me a favor? Can you intervene on my son's behalf? So this Rabbi, Rabbi Avram said, of course. He went, he knew, the, he knew that he calls the Rosh Yeshiva calls the head of the yeshiva and he's trying to persuade him, please, you got to let this student remain in the yeshiva. The rabbi, the head of the yeshiva, the rosh yeshiva refused. He says, no. He says, I can't let this boy back into the school. So the director of this organization said, listen, okay, can we at least meet? Can we at least meet together? So the rabbi says, yeah, not a problem, we'll meet. So fine. So this director, Rabbi Avram, goes and he boards a bus from Bnebak to go to Yerushalayim, where the yeshiva was. And he's sitting there on the bus and it's about an hour drive, and he's making phone calls that he needed to go regarding the meeting. Maybe try to get some donor, whatever. He's making phone calls to try to make sure that the meeting works uh, works out well. And as he's uh, making phone calls one after another, finally there was a guy that was sitting behind him, started getting so upset at him, and started he started screaming at him. He says, "Don't you have any consideration?" He says, "This is an hour bus ride. We're sitting on a coach bus. People are trying to sleep, and you don't stop." talking, one phone call after another, let people sleep, let people rest. And this director, this rabbi, he got so embarrassed, he's like, I'm so sorry, you know, he turns his phone on vibrate, and he decides he's going to postpone any other phone calls until he gets off the bus. A few minutes later, however, his phone starts vibrating, and he sees it's the head of the yeshiva, the rush yeshiva is calling him, and he's knowing he's, it's so difficult to get a hold of him, you know, he's going out to a meeting with him, he has, so he picks up the phone, he's like, hello. He whispers into the phone. And the, the rabbi, the Rosh Hashiva, goes and says, listen, I, I can see that you don't have time to talk right now, but I just want to tell you that, you know, I spoke to the boy, and the boy honestly regrets what he did, and I decided that I will allow this boy to remain in yeshiva. You don't have to come to the meeting anymore. So this rabbi, Rabbi Vram, was so thrilled. So he hangs up the phone, and he said, listen, I have such good news for this boy's father. I got to go, and I got to you know, share with him the news. So he, again, he picks up the phone and quietly dials this boy's father's number, and he, and he, answer, and he, the, you know, he starts talking into the phone. And he's like, hi, you know, very quietly. He's like, you, the issue was resolved. You know, I spoke with the Rosh Yeshiva. Your son will be able to go and remain in the school. But as he's talking to the boy's father, he hears like an echo. And he's like, he's like, you know, he's like bothering his concentration. All of a sudden, he holds the phone for a second. He turns around and he sees the guy behind him on the phone. And he's like, hello? And the guy's like, hello? Are you kidding me? The guy that went and complained to this, to this man, you are bothering everybody and not anybody sleep. That guy is the one that's helping, <laughs> you know, his own son. He was making phone calls for his own son. This guy wanted to bury himself in the seat with embarrassment. The, the, the father goes and says, I am so sorry. He says, I was going to the coastal now to pray for my son. I was so agitated. I was not myself. Please forgive me. Please forgive me. You know, the Rabbi Biederman goes and says, look at the lesson that we can learn from this story. People tend to complain. And we say when things don't go the way that they want them, we complain and sometimes we get angry at God. If we only knew that while... We are angry at God. God is actually working on our behalf and going out of His way as it were to go and help us. And if we would know that, we would never be angry with Him. You know, the biggest embarrassment is that when we go to up after 120 and we say, God, come on, really look what you did to me. And God says, what? Look at the picture. 
And when we see that that really saved us from so much problems, we would, we would want to like shrink from embarrassment. So we have to go and work on it and work on ourselves to go. And even when the bad, to realize, call man da'avid rachmana letavavid. Someone who lives the life with that everything that God does, God does for the best, living a life of emunah, faith, and bitachon, that person will always be joyful. Think about somebody who goes and just finds out he won the lottery. And he's going to cash in his check or the lottery ticket. And as he's walking, he walks into a, you know, like a, a saw, you know, like a, I don't know, a tree. And he walk into the tree and he's like bleeding. Do you think he's going to be painful? He's going to be like, what? No problem. Kisses the tree. Says, you know, see you later. Gets into his car. He's driving in his car over there. A guy comes, cuts him off, side swipes his car, you know, scratches his car. And he goes to him and, uh, and you know, the guy comes out and he says, oh, by the way, you know, you just, you know, hit my, you know, you hit my, I hit your car. I'm so sorry. And he says, nah, don't worry about it. He's going to cash in a million dollar check. He is not sweating this small stuff. Is people that live their life with emunah and bitachon, they don't not only sweat the small stuff, they don't sweat the big stuff. And by the way, this is not a simple level. It's a level that we have to go and strive to reach. Rabbi Israel Salanter pointed out that one is not allowed to say that Hashem's actions are bad. One is allowed to say that things are bitter, but not bad. Because medication could be bitter. But it takes it in order to heal the body. So we see over here that sometimes when we go through bad things in our life, sometimes that not only is it not bad, but it actually can gain, we can gain from this, like physically in this world. Sometimes it saves us from a greater loss. And sometimes that loss itself saves us. So we started off the class asking, Kol avid How? How are we supposed to live our life that way? How are we supposed to live our life? So one of the things is that we have to go and we have to look at God in every angle in our life, whether it's the good whether it's the regular and especially the bad. If we go and we start living our life in a way that everything that God does, God does for the best, then guess what? We're going to live a life of always happiness, always, you know, have, a, you know, this, this emunah bitachon. Nothing's going to bother us. Nothing is going to question us. And with that, we will actually reach such a high level, such a, a tranquility in our life that only blessing will come. And one of the things that we need to learn is that with emunah, this actually brings us blessing. So it pays for us to work on ourselves because this can be the answer to all our problems. And with that, we'll open up to any questions. Uh, you guys could either unmute yourself or you could put in the chat box any uh, questions that you have. Okay. We have a question over here. Uh, I heard you said, what, why did the first bad... Why did the first bad to begin with have to happen? So the the, the so so yeah. So the question is, why did bad have to happen? The God has many many calculations, and it's very very important. I say this again and again to many people uh, when I speak to regarding when people are going through difficulties. There's never there's usually there's, it, things are not one linear, meaning that God did this because of this. Obviously, God works me that can I get me that exactly, but we can you know sometimes it's difficult for us to point out what is the correct, you know, thing. And many times there are multiple uh, sort of avenues that reach the same thing, the same, the same conclusion. So we don't know why 
the bad ha- had to happen. But one thing that we do know is that it did have to happen. The bad ha- not only had to happen, that it was a required, whether it would be a tikkun, whether it would help us, you know, get a special blessing afterwards, whether it will go and, uh, you know, pr- you know, protect our children. There's so many factors that could come in. But one thing is for sure, that bad, if it happened to you, it was supposed to happen. Again, we're not speaking about over here negligence. That's a different class in itself. And entirely, B'zal Hashem will speak about it when the time comes through the series, which is, you know, what about your negligence? So how could it be good if it's your negligence? So that's something that we'll speak about, B'zal Hashem. Okay. The next question is, is why is the test of Emunah such a universal test? And how do you separate between if someone, some, if something's painful and knowing it's good at the same time. So there's two questions over here. So first of all, um, why is the testament not such a universal test? In, in life, um, and, and in fact, this is something we spoke about before the test of, uh, the, the final test before Mashiach comes is actually going to be a test of Emunah. This was also the test before the Jewish people left Egypt. This is a, uh, one of the, you know, Emunah is so important. That's one of the main factors that we're, you know, we're here in this world. There's, I mean, obviously there's, everybody has their own tafkid. But Emunah, many of the sages of the rabbis in our generation say, this is the test of this generation. It's a universal test because when we're living our life and we don't always, you know, See the full picture, which, by the way, is the title of Bizal Hashem next week's class: is seeing the full picture, which is a sort of a continuation of what we're dealing with tonight. Um, it, it's it's difficult for us to remain strong and have you know a good mindset. It, you know the the fact of having a good and happy life is very important for everything in your life. If you want to be a good person, if you want to be a good Jew, you have to have some sort of tranquility. If you're always having anxiety, if you're always upset, if you're always angry, then you're not going to be a good person. You're not going to be uh, you know, a good spouse. You're not going to be a good father. You're not going to be able to be a good Jew because you're not going to be able to do things at a full capacity. So, emunah, uh, you think about how important now uh, you know, the you know, mental health is. Emunah is probably the foundation of mental health. Like, you want to be mentally healthy, that's what emunah is. If I could sum it up, obviously, I'm not a therapist, and there's many things that goes, you know, on, and there's, I'm not a psychiatrist, and there's many aspects that sometimes there's a chemical imbalance. But for the majority of the healthy people, if you have a solid emunah, mentally, you're going to be pretty healthy. So, um, and the next question, the, the part two of your question was, how do you separate if something is painful and knowing that it's good at the same time? So, the the trick is to to start praising God uh, in every scenario, not only in a in the difficult or in the good, but, it, you know, like, that's why I started off in the beginning, that try once a day to try to go and, and sort of see God in everything. Like, see God. And, you know, so I tell a lot of people what's very important to do is to say five things that you're thankful for God for. And that's true, you should do that. This is something a little bit different. This is besides thanking God, this is just seeing God. Like you look at this, you know, the God is, you know, you see the trees, you see the water flowing, you see whatever it is in your own life. You know, you, you could be creative about it. The more that you see God, the more that you train yourself, the more that you'll be able to see God in every scenario. When you go with the people in, you know, I don't know, the, you know, people in the, in the army, in the, you know, special ops, or your people in the, you know, you know, the, 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 the SEALs, the Navy SEALs, when they're going through training, they're not just, you know, saying, okay, listen, when you're going to come to the situation, then we deal with it. They train day in and day out so that when it comes the time when they're in a situation, 
it's no longer something that they think about. It becomes natural to them. That's the thing, same thing with emunah, which I see over here. Somebody also asked, how do you build a stronger emunah? You got to train yourself. It's a daily, daily exercise. It doesn't work with one time that you go and you learn, listen to a class about emunah. It's a daily exercise. And this is something that, you know, I've told people again and again, I'm a very big fan of David Asher's uh, book on emunah, Living Emunah. He has four out there. Go and read one a day. You finish all four of them, email him, ask him when is the next one coming out, or call him, thank him. But when you finish it, start again. Learn emunah every single day. It's a, it's sort of like a muscle. You have to constantly work on it, and it's not enough just to read the information. Like, for example, so tonight, you know, we went through an hour of a class, it's not, an, now we have all this information, which by the way, it was specifically done that there was a lot of stories because there was focus to enter your heart and that's how you enter your heart through stories. When you go and when you internalize these stories, when you internalize this concept of call the avid rahmana latavavid, when you go and you internalize this, then you're going to be able to go and you're working yourself every single day. So then when God forbid something happens, you can be just that little bit extra ready for it. The next time that you stub your toe, instead of saying, Whatever you're going to say, you say, oh, Baruch Hashem. Or maybe you'll say, Kol maybe you'll say that. Okay, let's look at the next question that we have here. If everything is good, then why we keep praying three times a day? Sefer Tehillim after Sefer and so on. It should be enough to pray and Amida once and that should be enough. Oh, excellent, excellent question. What is the purpose of prayer? Um, and in fact, I, this, Bezat Hashem, one of the series that I want to do once I finish this is on prayer. And this question, in order to answer it, I actually want to devote most likely a full class on this. Like, what is the purpose of prayer? Uh, the question that really is stronger is if God decrees something, so how should, how could prayer, you know, change anything? Um, maybe I'll give you just a, a, like a little tidbit on it, being that you asked it now. When we pray something, when we pray for something, it's it's not only, we have to understand also what's kavanah that we're supposed to have. When we're praying the right way, and B'zal Hashem, when we learn about it, we'll be able to get a different appreciation for, for prayer. When we pray the right way, it changes who we are. It changes who we are. So when we change who we are, if, if uh, uh, God decreed something on Sarah, and now Sarah went and prayed, and she internalized a prayer, and she went and she worked on herself, she's no longer Sarah, she's somebody else, now she's somebody else, that could go, that decree is no longer applicable to her. Or sometimes she needs multiple prayers. Whatever, there's different, many, many different answers on this. But Bezalat Hashem will go at it in depth when we uh, speak about the, to- the, the topic of a prayer. Okay, next uh, question. We have, I keep on learning uh, Emunah daily. And in my mind, I really have it. How do I get it to my heart? Ooh, excellent question. Because when you go and when you intellectualize something, it doesn't always internalize into your heart. The question is, is that how do you go and you take something from an intellectual standpoint and you internalize it into, you know, into your heart that it becomes part of you? And this is, goes back to the day in and day out practice. You have to constantly go and work on yourself. The more that you work on yourself, the more that you internalize it. You think about, let's say, a, a doctor. When a doctor goes through so much training, they're sometimes so sleep deprived that their mind is not like fully working, but it's in their blood already. They know, they see this, they, you know, they're going to call for a, you know, com, you know, do a complete blood count on this and do a metabolic panel on this. And they're going to say, oh, you know, this person needs this medication. This person needs this surgery because it's ingrained into them. So if you want to really ingrain it into you, it's a constant, constant work that you're constantly studying it. You're constantly learning it. And after you learn it, you spend a little time internalizing it. So today, after you finish this class, start you know, give yourself two minutes and say, you know what? 
Everything that God does, God does for the best. How am I going to internalize it? Just think, and if you can't internalize it, just use it as a mantra for meditation. If anybody knows meditation, just keep on repeating it to yourself. Keep on repeating that everything that God does, God does for the best. And the more that you work it, the more that it will be internalized. But you have to like bring it, bring it in. You have to go and think about it, contemplate it, and bring it into your daily life. And that also brings us to the original part, which we started off with, which is start seeing God in everywhere. See, look, and say, wow, Baruch Hashem. You look at here, you look at there, you start seeing God in your life, so it starts sort of like becoming a part of you. Okay, next question is, um, okay, prayer is necessary for ourselves, but the question is more on why three times, why several times a day? Okay, so that's a, that's a, a you know, a very good question, but it's also something we're going to be speaking about. Uh, this is corresponding to Kobanot and also corresponding the prayers of our, uh, of our Avot, of Ramitzak and Yaakov, which correspond during that time. There's a special power during those time for certain prayer, but even more so, there is a very, very important aspect in the consistency part of it, as well as the aspect of, if we realize, we pray the same things every single day. Because it's, it's actually very important that you do that, because that's part of the internalizing aspect of it. It's part of the consistency that you're internalizing it into your, into your, into yourself. Just like we just spoke about that if you want to internalize a munah, it's constant, you have to look and see God everywhere. The same thing with tefillah. We're constantly praying to God, so we're internalizing it three times a day, every single day. We say the same things, more or less, you know, the same things again and again and again. Obviously, not including your own personal, uh, request, but that goes and internalize it upon many other things that Bezalt Hashem will discuss when we deal with that series. Next question is, sometimes our amuna is very strong in some areas of our life, but not in the thing that we struggle the most. Why? So that's a very good question. And there could be many answers. Why is it that you could have some people, and I'll give you, let's just explain that, that some people have, um, some people have amuna, let's say, in financial things. And no matter what happens, they have emunah and bitachon that whatever God does, God does for the best, and they're not worried about it. But then, when it comes to health issues, like the emunah is not there, or when it comes to like shalom bayit issues, their their emunah is is not there. Why is it that sometimes someone has emunah but it doesn't translate into anywhere else? So again, there can be many many reasons for that, but I want to give you one uh, one reason that in life we have many things that that are difficult for us to overcome. Meaning that some people go and have a particular test more than other people. And the reason for that is, is that our tafkid, our purpose, is for the thing that's very difficult. So if somebody went and has a difficult emunah on health issues, for example, then you should know that one of your main reasons of being in this world is because of that. You have to focus emunah on that reason. And the fact that you have emunah on, let's say, panasa or other things, it's not always that you worked on it and you achieved that. More times than not, it's because that's the way you are sort of like born and created. Some people are just more relaxed in certain areas than others. So the goal is, is that if you realize that you have a certain area that you're lacking, even in Munah, there could be so many avenues, then that's the part that you have to go and focus on. And when you're going and you're working every single day on emunah, the part that's difficult to you, so contemplate on that. Okay, health, everything comes from God. And God does everything is for the best. And if God made me this way, there must be a reason. Obviously, you should do your hishtadlut. You have to go and follow the things that you need to do. But at the end of the day, you have to know that everything is from God. Okay, that looks like that was the last um, question that we had. And uh, if there are no more questions, then we'll end it off here. We'll give, I guess, another 20 seconds. Uh, okay, we have a, a question coming in just a minute. Stay tuned.
You know, when you're dealing with the topic of the Munah, and this is something that I was thinking, you know, about, I have, you know, Baruch Hashem, that with, with the, the help of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, we were able to go through quite a few series. And when I was preparing for the series of Emunah, one of the things that I had the option of doing is that I could do it shorter, get to the points in shorter, or I can make it, you know, long. And I chose to make it long, not to stretch it out, because stretch it out is not the correct terminology, but I wanted to make it longer than my regular series, and that is because that Emunah has to be instilled with. It's not enough just to know the concepts. In many things, like we had a divinity series, that if you know the concepts, you can review the concepts, that's good enough. And Emunah has to be instilled. It's a constant, constant work. So that is one of the reasons that, you know, you realize a lot of the, the topics that we speak about, it's like a little bit of information here, lots of stories. Because that's what it instills it into your, um, you know, into, into your mind, into your, into your heart. And that is the focus on that. Okay. I think that was a minute. I don't know. I didn't see any. Um, I see Molly had a question. I don't know if you still had a uh, a question, but um, we'll give you another twenty seconds. I'll open it up, and then if not, then we'll end it off. And bezat Hashem, uh, we'll do it the uh, same time uh, next week. And by the way, this is also a you know, it, if somebody has a question, you don't have to wait till the end of the class to type it in. You can type it in as as we go, and we could uh, you know this way it's there. You don't have to struggle in right afterwards and be like, wait, wait one second. Uh, you know, you didn't need to answer. But okay, um, so uh, Molly, if you do have a question, then you can reach out to me privately and uh, at Rabbi Zitron at TorahAnytime.com. Oh, okay, never mind. About to say goodbye and you came in the nick of time. Okay, final question looks like, uh, or two of the final questions, then we'll close it off. I, fi- I find it dif- find, uh, I rather find it by the difficult places, it's there, but the small things like Waiting at a doctor's office is difficult. And I keep on saying, you want to wait a minute longer than it's meant to be. My blood is boiling. So, okay, I think if I could understand um, your question, is that that's not so much of a question of emunah, but it's more of a question of patience during difficult, stressful times, which obviously relates to emunah, like, exactly. But there are a lot of things that... You know, it's it's things that we need to work on ourselves. Like, um, you know, so I live in Brooklyn and now there's not so much traffic. But when you're going and you want to drive a few blocks and it takes you 20 minutes, people can get very frustrated. And it's, sometimes it's very difficult to be patient when you're driving. So when you're going and you're entering a difficult situation, you have to go and say, okay, you know what? I know I'm going to be stressed out right now. I'm driving in Brooklyn. I'm driving in Manhattan. I'm driving in a place that is going to be very, very stressful. I'm waiting in a doctor's office. So you sort of prep yourself and say, you know what? All right. Take a deep breath and be like, I'm not going to get upset or angry for the next 10 minutes. Very easy thing to do is to go and to wait, you know, know, 10 minutes. And I'll tell you like this. I know it's getting a little bit late. I went to... um, a uh, chiropractor uh, about a week and a half, oh, was it two weeks ago already? I don't remember what time. Amazing chiropractor. If anybody's out in Westchester, uh, doc, uh, Dr. Jonathan Donath. Amazing. Um, and I have a problem that I, I, you know, I crack my neck, I crack my back. I, you know, I have, I have some back and neck issues. So uh, he told me, he says, you can't, you're not supposed to crack your neck. You do not crack your neck, do not crack your back. And the next time you want to crack your neck or you want to crack your back, say you'll do it in 10 minutes. And I told him, I'm like, that's so funny. That's what I tell people when people go and they want to do a sin. I say, don't do it now. Wait in 10 minutes. So he's, he's giving the same advice, you know, to me. So uh, the truth is that if let's say you're getting upset, say, you know what? I'm going to get upset in 10 minutes. I'm going to get upset in five minutes. I'm going to, you know, let me go and let me relax during this, this time. Okay. The final question is, 
Yirat Hashem and Emunah, one without the other, or two faces of the same coin? Excellent question. Yirat Hashem and Emunah, which means is fear of God and Emunah. So um, they are very, very closely. Uh, they are very, very closely related. Uh, and in fact, when you look at almost anything in Judaism. Everything is connected. Everything is connected. But spe- specifically, yes, you're right. Yerat Hashem, fear of heaven, Animuna does have a very, very strong, uh, strong, uh, you know, connection. So that's a good point. Thank you for that. Uh, thank you for that, uh, Moshe. Okay. So, Chazak thank you all for joining. Uh, thank you all for all the organizations that, uh, joined us in this, uh, you know, endeavor, whether it's the Lighthouse, Bejuro, Chazak, uh, Torah Anytime, of course, um, and BJX. Thank you all for joining. Until next week, Bezat Hashem. May you all stay healthy and safe and have an amazing and uplifting, uh, week and Shabbat. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.